Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bickney, and with me, as always, is my loyal partner, my co-host, Mike Walker. How you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. I just came back from the road. I took a few days for a road trip down to Massachusetts, where I used to live. I saw a number of interesting people. More on that later. But what also struck me was the opportunity for friends and close ones to neg me spontaneously. These are people who had never spontaneously commented on much of anything that I'd ever done before, but these are people to say, eh, podcasts whatever. I liked it back when you did other stuff. It's like, well, that's great. I didn't ask you. And that's fabulous. And back when apparently I was doing things that you liked, you didn't volunteer that you liked what I was doing then. So I'm glad that you could chime in on your disappointment about my recent endeavors. I usually count on that kind of thing for my parents or failing that walker, but people in Massachusetts did not fail to take any opportunity. Oh, that just means they're good friends. Yeah, you know, supportive friends is great. But this is not a podcast about friendship, which is good because we don't know a whole heck of a lot about that. This no. is instead, we're going to talk about games this week, unlike previous weeks. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. Our feature game this week is going to be Mage Knight, the board game. This is the Vlada Kavatl design, not the pre-painted miniatures game, although more on that later. And our feature topic of the week is going to be player scaling, subtitle, lies, lies, and damned lies. So, with that in mind, let us begin with games we played last week. Walker, what did you get to the table? I pulled out an oldie but a goodie, at least in my books. It is called Railroad Tycoon. It goes under many names, Railways of the World and such. And I had a great time playing it. I thought it might show its age because I hadn't had it to the table in quite a while, but still loved it. Laying down track, pushing cubes around, delivering goods, opening up the Western Trail. Great game. Have you played any other games in that lineage? Have you played Age of Steam? Have you played Steam? No, the only one I've played was when I was on my on my adventures. I played a game in Dubai called First Class, and I'm really eager to get my hands on it. It's not uh, it's another import, hard to get, but I'm going to get put it on my list and get that in and show people the awesomeness that is First Class. I've never really liked pickup and deliver games. It's it's strange. It's one of those things that I'm not even really sure why I don't like them. It's one of the reasons why I don't like 18xx games, despite the fact that I love stock and investment games. But I have to say that Rail- Railways of the World has a lot going for it. I definitely prefer it to Age of Steam, mostly because it doesn't kick you in the nads quite so often in this frequently. But given that it wasn't designed by Martin Wallace, that's to be expected. True, I have no experience with the other ones, but I've watched and walked by other railroad games, and it seems very tedious and stock markety. And and this is just you know laying track, delivering cubes, upgrading your train, and hits all the notes in my book anyway. What did you play this week, Mark? Had a chance to try some new stuff. I played a game called House of Borgia. This is uh, designed by Scott Alms of the Tiny Epic series, also recently of Heroes of Land, Sea, and Air. And House of Borgia is kind of like Liar's Dice with a little bit of area influence and special powers. And I have to say that it is about as bad as I thought it was going to be, which is to say reasonably bad. And I I had some misgivings going into it for a number of reasons. Number one, I don't like Liar's Dice. So, you know, full disclosure, if you do like Liar's Dice, you might like House of Borgia more than I did. But also I have to say that all of the Scott Alms designs that I've tried, I've tried a, a number of the Tiny Epic series, for example, they always have a couple of clever ideas that 
are married to a couple of incredibly derivative and relatively bad ideas, and then they coalesce into a game that is not particularly compelling. They're almost buried. Like, there's this really great mechanism, and then he just dumps this other, all this other stuff on top. But I am interested, do you know where that falls into the other games? Is that, is that something he did before or in the middle of? Or It's something he's done relatively recently. It was released last year. Oh, really? Uh, by Gameland Games. So he's already had several tiny epics under his belt. And, of course, at the rate that they're putting them out, he's probably released five more tiny epics since I started the sentence. So. Time, tiny Epic Bees is next. I know it. Right. So in House of Borgia, you have basically you want to win an area majority contest. And every time you make a bid in Liar's Dice, you get to do some manipulation of what's going on on the table. But if somebody figures out what area you want to win, they can basically guarantee that you lose. It's been described as, as having some coup-like elements, which I don't think is accurate. Coup is a very unsophisticated and not particularly polished game, but its element of deception and counter guess is vastly more sophisticated and polished than it is in House of Borgia. Anyway, it wasn't it wasn't offensive. It was just uh, it didn't quite gel or coalesce into anything interesting. It was over relatively quick, so that was definitely a point in its favor. Lovely components, though. Oh man, whole bunch of really really cool looking custom dice and screen printed wooden tokens. But House of Borgia didn't do anything. Was for that me, yet right? another Kickstarter? Do you know? Of course it was, Walker. Of course it was. Yeah, of course it was. I played this week, finally, Ex, Li- Ex Libra? Ex Libra? Ex Libris. Ex Libris. The Gnome's Shuffling Books. And it was it was good. I, it was exactly what I thought it would be. It's, it's uh, you know, you sort, what was it called? Racco? The old game where you sort. I shouldn't really compare it to that because that's probably not a... You know, a, a nice comparison, but just the, you know, how everyone can pick a different character and they have wooden components for all the different races or asymmetrical powers you can have. And it overstays its welcome a little bit, but still easy to teach, easy to get to the table. I think it's a fairly decent game. If you're going to have a lighthearted, silly fantasy game about gnome librarians, you had best make sure that the books are all have cheesy titles. And sure enough, I haven't played the game, but I, I've seen people playing Ex Libris. And despite the fact that, so I mean, I come from a from an academic background, and Ex Libris, you know, literally means from the library of. And it, I have a bit of a cognitive dissonance with respect to the title because it connotes to me a sort of stuffy person who maintains a library of of esoteric tomes. But instead, this is. A game about gnome librarians, and you get all these cards representing your your collection of books, and uh, I just I honestly get a chuckle out of about a good third of of the book titles. So I think they did a reasonably good job with that. I'm glad that the game is at least inoffensive. Yeah, it, like I said, it has some of the actions it's like a worker placement. Some of the actions are really cool to do and fun to do, but then it comes down to putting books on the shelf and it I, I just don't think they put enough actions in to let you do that and there's a generic one on your board so when you when you do the action that lets you win the game or do what the game wants you to do it sort of falls short on that part but everything else is fairly interesting sometimes it's okay to have three or four steps to get a resource out and sometimes it's really not and I, I definitely I definitely hear you there have been lots of games where it's like why don't you just let me put this out the moment I get it but then sometimes there wouldn't be a game. Sometimes you need those extra steps because otherwise the game would, would be too too paper thin. But What else did you play this week? So in 1968, Parker Brothers put out a game called Situation 4, which is a real-time team-based jigsaw puzzle war game. Situation 4 is a game whereby you and possibly a teammate, you can play either one-on-one or teams of two against each other, which is the preferred way to play, because then you get to excoriate the incompetence of your partner. At least that's what happens well, when I play. I was going to say, that's that goes without saying. Yeah. 
and you claim territory by building a jigsaw. You start with your base, and both teams have the same jigsaw in different colors. And But you'd start from your base, and when you put down a, a puzzle piece in your color, you've claimed that territory. And they can get you points, that can unlock tanks, that can unlock rockets, and other things that you, you, you use again in real time. And the game ends when the puzzle is completed. The year after they released Situation 4, in 1969, they released Situation 7. Why it's Situation 7, I've got no earthly idea, but it's basically Situation 4, but in space, with a circular board instead of a square board. And it's it's the same idea. Cooperative, real-time, team-based, puzzle-building war game. It's shockingly clever. It's a very, very simple concept executed very, very, very well, with very straightforward rules, and I despise the game. And that's only because... It's a real-time puzzle game. And it's literally a jigsaw puzzle in, in real time. A puzzle. And it's it's so not the game for me, but I admire the audacity of the design. And it's so clever and it hasn't been replicated. It was published in the late 60s by about, Parker Brothers. I was just about to say the same thing. It's odd that it seemed to work. You seem to enjoy it. You've seen the, you know, what it can do. And, oh, I don't enjoy it, it at all. No, but I mean like enjoy, not enjoy, but enjoy talking about it. I love the conceit. Enjoy yeah. the interaction of it. But it has not been duplicated. It's odd. Yeah, so we've, we've got other real-time games that are kind of sort of... I mean, if you wanted to, you could say that Galaxy Trucker is a real-time puzzle game, but it's not really. I mean, one of the strengths of Galaxy Trucker is that how much you regard it as a puzzle is very much up to you. So, for example, the ships that I build in Galaxy Trucker are these ungainly monsters with, with exposed connectors all over the place. I'm just doing it as a resource grab, basically. I don't really care about the connections so much. And that that's an option. You can do it that way in Galaxy Trucker. But when it is ever the case that a game, especially in real time, forces you to rely on on spatial puzzles, especially in a team-based context. I've said the same thing about Captain Sonar, and this is definitely true of Situation 4 and Situation 7. I hate it. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. I can't do it. I, I freeze. I start just looking over everything. It's like, uh, I, I don't know. And, and everyone around me is making reasonable moves. So it's just, it's really, 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 really not for me. There are lots of things that I do badly that I enjoy doing. Puzzles are not one of them. And so I, I played Situation 4 years and years and years ago. I snagged a copy because a friend of mine, you know, found this oddity and wanted a, wanted a copy. So I found him one and we played it together. And I knew that there was Situation 7. And, and so when I got the chance to play it, I was, I was keen to revisit the concept, not so much the experience. But if any of this sounds appealing, there are lots of copies floating around in the secondary market. Just because it was published in the 1960s doesn't mean that it's rare or hard to find. It really is a unique experience. I, I recommend the situation, situation four or situation seven, on those bases alone. They really are very clever, shockingly effective designs. Nice, Mark. Have you ever played Biblios yet? I have played Biblios. I'm, I'm interested to know what you think. I've played it two times now, and I, for what it is and the time it takes, I, I don't mind it too much. But I'm wondering, the the end scoring mechanism is both its downfall to me, but so is you know the way it you know, so so much limits the end of the game and how much you have to compete for that also is what the game is all about. So what do you think? I played Biblios, uh, I think the year after it was very, it was first published in a, in a previous edition uh, when it was relatively uh, harder to find. And I, my reaction is very much the same as yours. I thought it was fine. It's okay. A lot of people seem to find Biblios to be some sort of 
godlike super filler that has you know far more depth than anything in its weight class. And I I don't I don't see that. I mean, maybe these people have only ever played fillers that are bad. But when it comes to filler based auctions, I've got nothing again. Uh, you know, my favorite is still for sale. I think for sale works really well. Reiner Knizia published a an auction filler called Money, which has a number of vague scoring similarities to to Biblios. And is cleaner and faster and, and I think works very well. Yeah, I've got nothing against Biblios. It just doesn't turn my crank. And I think that the scoring, as you say, is, you know, it's more clever than it is good, I think, in terms of how it functions. And th- those are my salient recollections of the design. Yeah, I was only thinking that it would be interesting to have different scoring mechanisms in the cards and stuff. But then, like I said, it would it would take away from, you know, the really hard bidding at those four essential areas. What you're doing is you're just drafting all these cards. You know you're going to take one for yourself, give one to each of the of the other players, and then you're going to put one in the in the stock. And then once you go through the whole deck, you're going to start bidding on the, all the cards that were put in the stock. And then you are going to cash in sets. Whoever has the most in a color is going to score whatever the die is at, because there's some cards that will let you raise and lower the die. That's pretty well biblios. But I'd play it again. But like I said, it just seemed like there was something there that could be more. More book-based games for you? Yes, more book book game. But, which is strange. I've, I've never seen you with a book, so. I can read. Uh... I didn't say you couldn't read. Well, I've said that in the past. <laughs> I didn't say that this time. Hey, I got glasses now. I can see the words. <laughs> Just because you have glasses doesn't make you smart, Walker. Uh, I, but it makes me look smart. I realize that your entire worldview is shaped indelibly by network television and anime. <laughs> Additionally, this weekend I got to introduce Corporate America to some new people. I've talked about Corporate America before. It's uh, a very funny, cynical negotiation game. And I just want to flag something about Corporate America. There were a couple people at the table that weren't super jazzed by it, which is fine, largely because, well, the stated reason was they don't like negotiation games, which is legitimate. Despite that, however, and despite the fact that during the rules explanation, I was relatively careful not to emphasize you can negotiate about this and you can negotiate about that and you can negotiate about this other thing. Despite all that, there was tons of negotiation around the table. And I just want to flag that because, to my mind, a good negotiation game is one where the opportunity for dealmaking is obvious and frictionless. So that even if you're not particularly inclined to go seek out deals, it is obvious that you should go pursue that and people will. So anytime a negotiation game hits the table and people who don't like negotiation games start haggling like crazy, I think that's the sign of a good negotiation game. Again, not that you have to like it. But corporate America very much does this. And again, to, to contrast this with Rising Sun, whose rulebook mysteriously, for whatever reason, is constantly telling you about how much negotiation goes on in the game. Many games of Rising Sun I play have no negotiation in it at all, which is fine. But if you want to negotiate, if you want to haggle, corporate America is a great game for that. If you don't like negotiation games, well, then stay away. That's all. I've pl- I played lots more, but I've talked about them before. I got a chance to play a couple of oldie but goodie Reiner Knizia games. One of them is called Winner's Circle. Winner's Circle has been a perennial favorite of mine for a while. It accommodates a large number of players, and it's about bidding on pretty ponies. And it is just, it's just fun to be able to root for some horses and, and watch them fall way, way, way behind. And it creates a, a, you know, a fair degree of memorable moments, despite the fact that it's a relatively simple bidding game with die-based movement. It's not quite roll to move, but it's almost... But it's Reiner Knizia, so you know that something yeah. clever is going to go on. And the horses have great names, so it's easy to root for the for the downtrodden or the ones that are behind. And when they, you know, sprint forward and win, it makes it that much more memorable for sure. Absolutely, I've got the new Korean edition with the pre-painted plastic ponies and the metal coins and everything. It, oh, it's 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 very swank. 
The other old, uh, oldish Reiner Kinsey game I played is called Rhinelander. This is, or Reinerlander, as uh, we sometimes call it. Anyway, Rhinelander is a game that is a little bit like Winter's Circle, but also very much like Clash of the Gladiators. Is one of those games that Reiner Kinsey fans point to and say, look, even Reiner Kinsey can design a bad game. And I don't know why Rhinelander and Clash of the Gladiators, for different reasons, get so much flack. I think Rhinelander is a great game. It is in some ways similar to Tigris and Euphrates in that it is about slowly developing kingdoms that then merge with each other in very conflicty type ways. It's got a reasonably clever card system. It's very simple to teach and set up and explain. It has some player scaling problems. We'll talk about that later. It's best with the full complement of five. But I just don't get the flack behind Rhinelander. I think it's great. It it, it it has some subtlety. It has risk. It has a sense of tempo. and uh, Fun game. I regret not playing it more often. And again, I think it's an underappreciated element of Knizia's canon. All right. Now on to the news and why it does not matter. Well, today in the news, Seven Wonders gets another expansion and yet another reason why not to play it. <laughs> Do, do, does each expansion <laughs> constitute a new reason not to exactly. play? Exactly. No, I, 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 I just want to say, like every time I play it, and they, people try to introduce these new expansions to try to make it into this grandiose game that I, and I think it just shines at its base. It's you know, play a card, you know, and move along. Opening up this box and deciding, you know, how many or all expansions, and then going through all the rules and passing around all these rule books. What all the leaders do? What does this do? And I think it just takes away from the essential of all it is what Seven Wonders is, in my opinion. I love drafting games. I love Antoine Boza. I do not like Seven Wonders in any configuration. But tell us about this new expansion, though, Walker. It's called Seven Wonders Armada. And it's about every time you play a colored card of whatever particular color it is, it's going to move your little boat along the track, apparently, and add yet another mechanism to an already bloated game. On the topic of something that's already bloated... The hosts of So Very Wrong About Games. So one of the things that I did on the road, this is sort of a podcast internal bit of news. I managed to sit down with some interviews with a couple of people in the industry, and I think they had some very interesting things to say, despite the fact that uh, I did not ask very good questions. We're going to be airing these interviews later on. I need to sit down and edit them and uh, get them ready for, for broadcast. But just to let you know, this is under the general aegis of Walker and I are considering other features going forward. We've been having a great time with the podcast. We're going to keep doing that, of course. But we're thinking about what other things we can do, what other things you might like to see or hear from us. And so my having an opportunity to do some interviews seemed like an, an obvious next thing to do. But suffice to say, if there's anything you want from us, if there's any anything else you'd like us to try, if there are any segments you'd like us to experiment with going forward, please feel free to contact us through any of the number, numerous ways to contact us. And we hope you like what we're going to be trying in the future. Include the safe word too, please. My next bit of news is Renegade Game Studios is going to be putting out a new edition of Arboretum. Really like this game. I don't know if it's hard to find, but there was only the one edition. It's really hard to find. Is it? All right. Well, there you go. I've only I've only been able to play one person's copy. I really like it. They're going to add new art and better symbology, apparently. It was strange, and I, I, there's got to be a story behind it. And I suspect the story might just be too many projects, not enough time. But Z-Man put out the one printing. They didn't print nearly as many copies as the market seemed to want to absorb, and then they never bothered doing any more reprints, which is odd, and not necess not just because there was demand for it. There are lots of things for which there's demand for which there, there won't be reprints, but it's a small box, simple card game. 
and you'd figure that it would be relatively easy to re-up on that. But, you know, Z-Man, ever since it was acquired by Sophie Gravel, has been doing relatively, from the outside, relatively... Flatline. Well, difficult difficult to understand things. I mean... I don't want to say flatline as in it's going down or anything, but I mean, it's just, they're just like, seems to be like just a status quo. Nothing, you know, over the top, nothing... Yeah, the, the the difficulty of finding Arboretum is is bizarre. It's, uh, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about the internal politics of deciding what to reprint and what not to reprint, but there w- definitely was a lot of demand, a lot of clamor, as evidenced by the fact that when Renegade announced this reprint, there was rapturous enthusiasm from many segments of, of the board game consumer market. So good for them. Renegade just needs to put out Altiplano in North America already. Like, we've waited long enough. Get to it. Let's go. Stop introducing these other things, and let's get it done. Yes, your enthusiasm for llamas will admit of no limitation. They'll be coming soon. All right, now on to our feature game, which is Mage Knight, the board game, not the feature film. In 2000, there was this tabletop minis game that was released by WizKids, and this was the first thing that WizKids ever did, and it was a collectible format pre-painted minis game. For tabletop miniatures, and this was a this this was bizarre in a number of ways. This was a a market innovation in the sense of bringing the collectible format to minis games, of having pre painted minis, and all this in service of a tabletop miniatures war game, which was a, a bizarre confluence of events. Anyway, Mage Knight is dead, but Hero Clicks, which is more or less Mage Knight in uh, in a number of ways, although they are very different systems, still survives, and there are lots and lots of adaptations of, of Hero Clicks to lots of other licenses. So in, in some sense, the format still is still kicking. For what it's worth, I, I didn't think Mage Knight was especially interesting, but Mage Knight Dungeons, released a couple of years later, was great. Yeah, I realized that you had some, and about three totes of it was left to me, so we really need to get together and, and play some Mage Knight Dungeon. Yeah, Mage Knight Dungeons in a lot of ways is is still a really good dungeon crawl. <laughs> a number of really cool stuff about it. Very dated in a number of ways, but still really good. Anyway, so that's, that was the origin of the Mage Knight property. Uh, enter Vlada Kavatl. Vlada Kavatl in 2002 published a, uh, at the time, little appreciated game called Prophecy. And Prophecy was basically his version of Talisman Done Right. Talisman is a, a roll and move, incredibly arbitrary, overlong fantasy adventure game with termination problems. It just doesn't know when to end and you're just wandering around whacking things. Uh, this is all true. I don't want to bash Talisman because look how old Talisman is. Back in its day, Talisman was fantastic. I'm going to be the first to stand up and say right now I no. would never play it, and it was painful. Talisman was never good. But it, back, back then it no. was because we had nothing else. No. Oh, I don't know. I can't, no, Talisman well, I can't is ne- agree. It was, we, Talisman we, has never been, worth, never been worth your time. We had a blast. <laughs> it was fun. But oh, I, sure. I, I, I mean, would never play it again. Whatever, whatever abuses your simple mind is great for you and yours. But, uh, you know, your reactionary defense of anything that's nearly as old as you are is understandable. Uh, but for those of us with taste and refinement, we can we can acknowledge that pro- that Talisman was never particularly good, and Prophecy sought to improve on the formula by introducing things like uh, you know choices. It still, however, had the same basic format of your average fantasy overland adventure thingy. You know, you wander around and kill things and get treasure and, and so forth. But movement wasn't arbitrary. The threats were visible face up, and you know you had some some ability to pursue your own goals. Anyhow. WizKids, for whatever reason, decided that Mage Knight needed a board game. Despite the fact that the brand had been relatively dormant, they they decided that they were going to have a Mage Knight board game, and Vlada Kavatl was the designer. I don't know whether it started with, with Vlada's involvement or if he was brought on later, but in 2011, 
WizKids released Mage Knight the board game, which was Vladikavatl's second major attempt at doing the sort of overland fantasy adventure game with a sort of vague theming of the Mage Knight universe, such as it is. It's just, you know, something, something Atlantean, something, something nonsense, nonsense. It's not particularly compelling. Anyhow, so what do you do in Mage Knight, Walker? Well, I've got Mage Knight down here as a deck-building hand management risk-reward game. You're taking a single adventurer, and by using your hand of cards, which is your hand limit is based on what level you're at, and there's movement cards, attack cards. You're going to be moving across this landscape, revealing map tiles, fighting monsters, deciding whether or not it's advantageous to uh, take wounds in your hand. You know, that's the risk part. You know, getting more experience points, but taking the wounds into your hand so you get more experience, so you can get more cards. You can go to monasteries and wizards' towers and citadels and cities, recruit followers, get more advanced actions, and come out as the hero. Or perhaps the anti-hero. Or the anti-hero. I did talk about how the theme was relatively more or less an afterthought, but the theme does make clear that it's not exactly certain whether the the things that you're doing are are good or bad, and you do have the option of doing some pretty reprehensible things. True, with hardly any drawback. It's like, oh, you can, you know, pillage the village. You lose some reputation, but you get some cards, and it seems the very, very uh, advantageous thing to do. So let's talk about the duck building, because I think it's worth noting that Mage Knight was released only three years after Dominion. So this is very much in the early stages of people tinkering around with the deck builder format, and there were a lot of early variations on the deck builder that were really bad and didn't really understand how deck building was supposed to work. And this is, again, even by major designers. Like Martin Wallace, it took him several tries to get deck builders to work properly. And already in Mage Knight, you see some things that other deck builders have since done. One of the things that stands out to me is it's the fact that all the cards are multi-use. You can play a card for effectively six different ways, even though it's relatively simple. There's the basic action, there's the souped-up action, which costs some degree of magical energy, or you can play it quote-unquote sideways to generate just one of any basic uh, resource, of which there are four different kinds. And so you can get more or less anything done that you want to if it is a relatively simple task. The idea is that rarely is a card truly dead, just sometimes it'll be extremely inefficient, which, coupled with your hand limit, can be a serious limitation. And I think that that was really clever, and it really helps you look at your hand and see that there's a billion different options you can do with with any given hand of cards. True, and the fact that you don't actually have hit points. You're just taking these wounds into your deck, and they're going to bog your deck down. So you're going to draw your hand, and your hand's going to be, as you take the wounds, they go into your hand, or certain abilities, uh, attacks will put them into your deck. And then you're slowly just going to be drawing nothing but wounds, and you're going to have to take rest actions to get rid of them or heal yourself up. And I think they did a fantastic job with it. And the fact that every character, there uh, there's uh, four come in the base game. Their decks are relatively the same, except for one card that stands out. With the expansions, they'll eventually get two cards that are different than everyone else's. But the way they, you know, transform over the game, they really become different. So let's talk about how the deck evolves, because that, I think, is another way in which Mage Knight is different from a lot of other deck builders. In your average deck builder, whether it's the early ones like Dominion or the later ones like any of the Realms games, your deck is going to be nearly unrecognizable by the end of the game compared to how it started. My experience, I'm interested in hearing if your experience is different, that in Mage Knight, that's not quite 
So you do add to your deck, of course, whether it's wounds or whether it's other other good stuff. But you're going to be using a lot of basic cards, even at the end of the game. Especially considering how much more powerful you are by the end of the game. Because, and this is, again, one of the ways in which it's different from a lot of other deck builders, your deck changes, but your non-deck stuff becomes more and more important as the game goes on. The followers that you mentioned, skills that you can acquire by leveling up. So yeah, you get new cards and the cards change, but... In my experience, really the way that that it changes is, is twofold. Number one, your non-deck stuff, which is really important. And number two, you start exploiting really powerful individual cards and supplementing them with lots of basic cards. Because this is a game about combos and exploiting huge combos rather than necessarily having just a massive amount of buying power in a given hand like you might have in other deck builders. Yeah, and there's there's very little ways that you can actually cull your deck. There are very a few cards, and it barely even covers it in the rules. So you do have to make sure that you you're going to be able to use the basic cards over and over again. And this is another way in which de- this is different from lots of other deck builders. In a game of Dominion, you're going to be shuffling your deck many, 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 many times. In Mage Knight, in an average scenario, you're going to cycle your deck six times and six times only. Or maybe not even cycle all of your deck because the round might end before you're done cycling your deck. And so all the intuitions that lots of people have about deck builders in terms of the ratio of new cards you're going to get or the way you go through a deck or the manner in which you upgrade, it subverts a lot of them. And I think that's one of the ways in which Mage Knight really kind of flips the deck builder concept on its head. Yeah, we should talk. I always want to talk about that quickly, how it works. In Mage Knight, you're doing uh, day-night cycles. And when you go through your entire deck, that's one of the cycles. So unlike other deck builders where cycling through your deck quickly is usually advantageous not so much in mage knight every hand of cards that you you draw you really need to work make each card work in order to get the most out of your turn because as soon as you get to the bottom of your deck then you're going to be out for that cycle and you'll have to wait till either the night or the day comes up so you can start again i'm glad you brought up the night day cycle this is actually leads into one of my major criticisms of mage knight I'm a big fan of the game, I think, as, as, as relatively clear already. It does a number of things very cleverly, but there's a lot in Mage Knight that strikes me as too much. I think an, a, a fair amount of it could, could be pared down. Again, I don't object to complexity, but sometimes I feel that there's complexity in Mage Knight for the sake of complexity, and some of it relates to this whole day-night cycle. There's the good stuff. Day is differentiated by virtue of the fact that you have access to wild magic, which is to say magic that can be any color. So you tend to have a little bit more flexibility. Night is characterized by the fact that spells can be a lot more powerful. And so if you have a spell and you're able to, if everything aligns just, just right, you can do something really epic at night. All of that is fine. But the way that it interacts with the map, it so it, it does a number of weird things with the map. One, it changes the movement cost of various terrain types. That's okay, but a little bit weird. Another thing that it does, though, which really, really annoys me, is it inter- it, it intersects with a number uh, another area in which the game is overall cumbersome, and that is the profusion of different sites that exist on the map and how they're all subtly different. For example, if it's nighttime and you move next to a mage tower, do you get to see what's in the mage tower? No. But if it's during the daytime, you do. And so you have to remember that if somebody's next to a mage a, a mage tower and it flips over to day, well, then you have to flip over the token. And this is just one of the, the you know, about a dozen different type of, types of sites. And they all behave slightly differently based on whether it's night or day. And this honestly is not one of my favorite aspects of the game, just managing that kind of level of minutia. And I think that the day-night cycle contributes to that. True. There's a lot of things that definitely could have been cut out. 
I do like the, I really do like the initiative cards they have for each cycle. At the beginning of each cycle, you choose whoever's got the lowest experience gets to choose from this deck of six initiative cards, and it's going to give you some sort of an ability for that turn. And I really like how subtly they change the game and how they take this simple turn process and make it into something interesting. Yeah, that I could largely take or leave. I'm not I'm not convinced that the many of the special abilities on the initiative cards are at all worthwhile, but that could just be my own habits and my being blinkered. It again strikes me as one of the sub-mechanisms that works fine but doesn't necessarily grab me. When I think about the key experience of playing Mage Knight and its key strengths, I think about interacting with your deck and your non-deck resources to get specific tasks done, not so much in wrestling with a bunch of other subsystems that the game throws at you, many of which don't necessarily add a whole lot to texture or flavor. Uh, yeah, there, there, there are a dozen different kinds of things on the map, and there are three or four different ways to fight brown enemies on the map, and they all give you slightly different combinations of slightly different resources, and keeping them, keeping them differentiated in your head is borderline impossible. That's why you're going to find dozens of and dozens of different player aids on BoardGameGeek. Mage Knight is one of those games that you have to play with a player aid, in my experience. The reference cards that the game comes with are functional, but relatively insufficient. And even though I've played Mage Knight a number of times, and I, and I remember the core elements of the rules, the moment sites start showing up, I don't remember how they work, and I have to go look it up every time. And the, all the enemy tokens have all these different symbols on them, and then the expansions just make it that much more difficult to try to remember what they all do. And that brings into another, you know, frustrating part on, like you said, some of the tokens aren't flipped over at night. You actually have to move right into the site and then you get, and then it's a surprise. You know, you're not, you know, you have no idea what you're going to run into. And that sort of takes away from the whole, you know, managing your turn and planning it out and the flow of the game. It's like, oh, I have no chance to beat this. And I just take a whole bunch of wounds just because I had no choice but to, you know, jump in there blindly. Yeah, some of the enemy types, often there's one or two enemy types within a given enemy group that you really, you have to have the right hand to deal with them. And if you don't have that right hand, you know, some people might appreciate that level of risk taking, but I don't. It just seems a little bit arbitrary to, to, to know that first you have to look at the list of all the enemy types that could be in that color group and then you figure, well, you know... Three out of uh, three out of six of these, I'll have no problem beating. Two of them, I can beat with difficulty. One of them will murder me. Okay, let's take that risk. I move in. Oh, it's the guy that's going to murder me. So you know, it, it's not a particular kind of rules referencing that I find engaging, and in some cases, it can really set you back. Not just for a turn, but it can set you back for an entire round or an entire sixth of the game, which is not particularly satisfying. I agree. I do like how some of the enemy abilities interact with your hand, though. Like how some you can use movement to block, some will make you dump your whole hand out, you know, some will, you know, double certain stats down. I really like how very simple, simple symbology really changes up how your cards work. The special abilities and the variety of effects that come both from your cards and from the enemy tokens themselves is great. I think it's one of the key driving appeals of the game in that so many of these different encounters feel so different. So it's a very long game. Well, not, not necessarily very long. If, you, if, you're, if you're playing with a, a, the recommended player count, more on that in just a moment, then you, you might be able to knock it out in two hours if you're super brisk, one of the, one of the more substantial scenarios. But... In that context, a lot of games like this, even good ones, you end up feeling like you're doing the same fight over and over and over again. 
But in Mage Knight, they're all going to be really different by virtue of the, the variety of effects. And managing that universe of effects is honestly one of the key appeals in almost any fantasy adventure game, and I think that Mage Knight does it much better. This is not a game like Descent, where you get a better weapon that just means you get to roll more dice. Every card you get, every ability you get, every skill you acquire, every unit you hire, every monster you fight, is going to have unique elements that you have to take into account. And that, that to me, is the primary appeal. While we were talking here, I really I really thought of something that really is black and white in this game. Like the There's two types of what they call rampaging enemies, and I like how they scale on the first few map tiles that you that you uh, explore. You're going to get the you know the easier ones, the orcs, and then as you go further into the thing, you get the dragons. And all you have to do is move next to them, and you can taunt them in. Or if you move two spaces beside them, then they automatically attack you, and you can integrate that into your movement, right? You just because you're going to go somewhere else anyway, you might as well attack it, and just you know it's easy to get in combat. Contrary to all of the sight things where you have to, where you might not know what's in, you actually have to move in and the enemy's going to be fortified. The difference between those two types of encounters, I'm not sure if it's too much or I just thought that it's a huge, it's a stark difference. Yeah, that, that fundamental difference between the rampaging monsters on the map and the various different kind of fortified sites, that distinction is is good. And I think it, it leads to some good variety. The fact that there is you know, half a dozen different kinds of fortified sites that all work slightly differently. That part I could have I could have done without. It's interesting you say that the difficulty between the orcs and the dragons scale, though. That isn't necessarily the verb that I'd use. I'd say it, it it's a difficulty curve that's kind of like jumping off a cliff. Orcs you can kill at level one, usually, and don't have any, you know, they, they might give you a couple wounds. And then there are dragons that will eat your face. And this is this is true even later on in the game. And this is this is one of the ways in which Mage Knight, I think, despite the, the, the manifold ways in which it's very, very different from your games like Talisman or even like Prophecy, is very much in the same mold. In games of this ilk, generally speaking, the, the story of the game is going out and getting challenges and getting stronger and then knowing when you're ready to take the next risk up. Knowing when you are now powerful enough to start going after harder quarry. And to be honest, and this is just a very personal objection, I find that kind of calculation not particularly satisfying. And the reason why, and this is, again, personal disclosure, I'm extremely conservative. I'm risk-averse, and I generally don't think that I can ever do it. So generally, it's, it's kind of like sticker shock. I look at a dragon, I look at its stats, I look at all its powers, and I, I basically, part of my brain just shuts off and says, ah, unkillable. I reduce the world into you know, two, two large baskets of enemies. Easy to kill and unkillable. And so playing a game like Mage Knight forces me to play against type in a way that I don't necessarily appreciate. But that's true of all games of this ilk. It's, it's, it's shocking to me, or it's at least very striking to me, how similar that structure is across games that are, even, that are very, very different. I agree with all those points. And the fact that you can sort of, in the last turn, you know, work the mechanics where you can take a bunch of wounds because it doesn't matter because you know the game's going to end at the end of this turn. So it sort of takes away from the story. Not that there's much story to begin with, which brings up another point I want to talk about. Most of the scenarios are two and th- two or three lines that all just boils down to the same thing. And I think they sort of missed something that they could have done more there with, you know, real scenarios and a real campaign type system. Well, let's talk about the scenarios because I think that's one of the strengths and the weaknesses of the game. In Mage Knight, there are a whole bunch of different scenarios at the back of the book. And each expansion introduces new scenarios and new kinds of ways to play the game. And I do actually really like the... Certainly the, the first expansion, which uh, has Volcare in it, which was basically this guy who's this 
huge uber general that, again, in keeping with a lot of the story of the game, you know, he has mysterious motives and no one knows what he wants and what he's doing, just like everyone else in the game. Sometimes he's standing around waiting for you to kill him. Sometimes he's running towards your starting portal, and if he gets there, you lose. Sometimes chasing you around the map. Those scenarios, I think, are really good. A lot of the other scenarios, as you say, are just very, very, very minor variations on a theme, which is to say, you're going to have these cities, go kill the cities. Sometimes you have two rounds to do it. Sometimes you have three rounds to do it. Sometimes the cities will be a little bit harder. Sometimes you have more cities or fewer cities. But at the end of the day, it's all the same. Level up, go find the cities, kill them. And that actually dovetails with with another uh, issue that I have, is that there are a number of ways to play Mage Knight, but I think that most of them are mistakes. So... The player count that you can play Mage Knight in is theoretically 1 to 4. You can play it solo, or with one of the expansions, you can play 1 to 5. In my experience, playing past two players is largely a mistake. Three is doable, but not really recommended. That's been your experience? For sure, 100%. I would not play this with three players again. Yeah, certainly not with four, and certainly not with five. Because, again, it's just too long. And... Not just, not even just in terms of the length, but because every hand is a puzzle, looking at your cards and figuring out what on earth you can do with it, people's turns are relatively long. So then the issue is, okay, well, what about the player interaction? And that's the other problem. If you're playing this game competitively, because you can play either competitively or cooperatively, in theory, the way to introduce more player interaction is to introduce player versus player combat, which, again, in this game is optional. So you can play you can play solo, you can play co-op, you can play competitively with PvP, competitively without PvP. So on the surface, there's lots of different options. But really, the player versus player combat is so clunky and unsatisfying, it's another whole set of rule systems. Suddenly, damage works in an entirely different way. Damage in this game in, in Mage Knight is relatively involved to begin with, and it works differently if you've got resistances or playing to units or taking it in the hand, blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. And so it introduces a new way to track damage, and it's just not particularly engaging or fun. It's this this it's this cumbersome procedure, and all that it basically amounts to is you know whacking your opponent upside the head. It's not a particularly satisfying engagement, and so it really kind of cuts down on the universe of viable play modes in in, in Mage Knight. Does that been your experience? Yeah, for sure. All those points, especially I have that down as one of my points, is that you can see it both ways. That that's a puzzle, and you can be figuring out your puzzle while other people are taking their turns and then it's your turn and you're all ready but then you've forgotten about one symbol or you know your one thing you didn't do it quite right and because you need so much out of your one hand of cards it really leads to analyst paralysis right because you know you really need to get everything out of every hand of cards so you'll sit there you'll try to rework how everything works and it really will make the game long and whatever, the other things that happen when you play with three players is that the first two will go out and pretty well clear the map of all the tokens. And the third person is sitting there with nothing to do. And he's just playing, you know, the racing game, trying to catch up and, you know, you know, get into other map tiles before the other players do. And they're already behind in experience. So, Mage Knight is a demanding game both in terms of rule systems and in terms of the calculation involved. If you're off by a single point of move, a single point of block, or a single point of attack in a key encounter, especially if you have to move into a fortified site, it can completely undo your ability to get anything done on that turn that you really wanted to do. And so you're right. It is the case that during during someone else's turn, you can make these calculations. But if you're off by a tiny bit, you have to start over from scratch and everyone gets to sit and watch you. So basically... So, some total, what I'm what I'm talking about here is, despite my enthusiasm for Mage Knight, there are 
basically only two core scenarios that I enjoy, going and killing a city or going and killing Volcare, and I will really only play solo or two-player co-op. Those are pretty much the only ways that, that I'm willing to play Mage Knight, which is not a huge shortcoming, but it is definitely the case that I find that the apparent surface-level variety that is included in, in the game is a bit illusory. Hey, Drew, very rarely do I even play a scenario. It's shuffle a city into, like, four of the end tiles and then just lay the map out and go. Like, I, I don't see a reason to do any of the scenarios, except for, like you said, the Volcare one. So there have been three expansions for Mage Knight, as we've already talked about. The first one is, to my mind, the most essential of the expansions, uh, and that's the Lost Legion. That's the one that introduces a new character and uh, Volcare, but it also introduces just more cards for everything, more enemy types for everything, and lots more variety with minimal rules overhead, with the exception of Volcare scenario. The, the Volcare scenario, he has his own, he follows his own rules, but honestly, it's not too, too, too much. But just having more variety is always, always for the good in games like this, and I think that, that there's a lot of solid additions in, in the Lost Legion. Then there was the Crane character expansion, which just introduces a new character, so not really a whole lot there. And then there's the most recent one, which is called Shades of Tesla, which uh, I know that you, uh, Walker, have what could best be described as uh, a vendetta against the new character introduced in Shades of Tesla. Would you, would you care to share your opinions on this? I don't, if you look at the box cover, it looks like this fantastic bear druid. And, it, well, it's the same thing about all the miniatures. They're, I think they're very poor paint jobs on most of them, except for Volcare. Volcare is amazing. Volcare is good, you're right. But this, the Druid especially, it's it's really bad when you compare it to the, you know, the box art and just the paint job on it and just the pose and the stature. And just... I, On the one hand, I agree with you that the Druid is hideously ugly, but I don't understand why you hate the Druid so much in particular, because all the minis are pretty bad. They are, but this guy particularly. So okay. like we're, I was I looked at him again. I actually played him in the last time we played the Tesla thing. I just said, well, I'm going to... That I'm, would explain the vomit all over your kitchen I'm, floor. I'm playing this guy every time out of spite. <laughs> I'm going to purposely get him killed. No. Walker hates really. himself and so punishes himself with the druid. But no, we're just... We held him up to the box again and it just... it not It's not even close. Like, I don't even know... I'm wondering if it was just like a, you know, a backup sculpt they had lying around because it is... Not even close. In fairness, the components for Mage Knight generally are pretty poor. A lot of people who are not members of the Church of Sleeves, the only game they sleeve is Mage Knight, and I can kind of see that. The The, the card quality is not very good. The tokens are not very good. There were huge component issue matching problems with the different print runs of the expansions. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm willing to suffer through it all because, again, I really do like Mage Knight. I think it's it's very interesting, and it does a lot of things really well. Uh, but for a lesser game, I would have given up on the line a long time ago because Wids Kids, at, by this point, has a very well-deserved reputation for dropping the ball in terms of component quality. Well, when you compare it to the card art, it just makes no sense because the card art is fantastic. It's true. The card art is great. Different piece of art on practically everything. It really makes your character. It, it look. It makes it look like your characters are doing these awesome, incredible things. And to a certain extent, it's worth noting, quite at odds with how calculational and puzzle-like a lot of the game is, if you take a step back and try to appreciate the scope of what's going on, your characters really are semi-immortal badasses who go and lay waste to armies all by themselves. This is not a sensation you're often going to get. I contrast this with a game like Spirit Island, and I've, I've talked about this before. One of the virtues of Spirit Island is you do amazing things and you get to feel really powerful. In Mage Knight, your character is doing these amazing things, but basically you're just 
going through a puzzle of of very well done intricate mechanics. So you know, not terribly thematic all told. Would better have component uh, better components have helped? Maybe. But at the end of the day, it's really a very calculational affair, even though at times the universe seems to want to make you feel like something epic is going on, but that's really not its strength. Yeah, the compo- bringing up the components brings up the other part about the, we've talked about, you can use this mana to, to boost your abilities, and they have two different types. They have mana crystals and mana tokens, but you're supposed to use the same components for both. Mana crystals you get to keep forever. Mana tokens you have to use for that one hand. Yeah. And it's just sort of like, really? Why can't... You know, it just seems like yet another mechanism piled on top of of the hundreds that are already there that could have been done differently. And then that on top of this, the dummy player that you should play with if you're playing one or two players. There is a very good app that automates the dummy player. And despite what I've said about apps before, I almost never resort to an app, especially when it duplicates existing components, because you're going to spend so much time wrestling with the system in Mage Knight. And I think it it will reward your effort, but there's a fair amount of wrestling to be done. I do use the app to automate the dummy player. I think Mage Knight is a great game that's easy to get back to the table, because I think the symbology is there. It's a basic you know, what your cards can do, what you need to do. So in that respect, I like it because it's easy, not, I shouldn't say easy to teach, but my teaching method for this is to just start. We, I have them lay their cards out. I put them on the map. I show them what they can do. And then as the new things are revealed, then I explain to them what they can do. Instead of trying to, you know, front load all of these mechanisms on them right off the beginning, I just sort of, you know, walk them through the first couple of turns. I do a combat, show them how it works. And then, you know, they slowly integrate all these different things. And it seems to work much better that way. I wouldn't necessarily go that far in terms of, you know, it being easy to get to the table or easy to teach. I will say this. It is the mark of an excellent designer, which Vlada Kavatl definitely is, that despite the level of complexity and the level of detail and the number of subsystems involved in the game, that I don't have any fundamental rules hiccups when bringing the game back to the table after a year not playing it or or what have you. And it is much easier to teach than almost any other game of its complexity. We talked before, and just to contrast this with with, with a game we talked about uh, not too long ago, Feudum. Feudum is a game which is system upon system upon system, and at the end of the game you figure all of this was in service of what? And explaining it is a chore, and a lot of the things just don't seem to fit anywhere. Mage Knight also has system upon system upon system, but at the end of the game you can think about awesome stuff you did, and you can, and it's very satisfying to be able to pull off these these combinations, and it's easier to teach to people, and it's it's got a more immediate intuitive appeal and even though the components are of low quality the component design doesn't fight you all of feudum's components are of excellent quality but the component design fought you so in many ways this is the way to do a heavier game this is the way to get the the way to do it and vlada kavadal seems to know how to design very 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 intricate games that nonetheless work and are able to be sufficiently approachable that they can latch that the systems can latch into your head and you can remember how to how to get them to work despite their complexity so at the end of the day, I think we, we're, we're both roughly in the same space with respect to Mage Knight. We both really like the game. It has its faults. It's not for all the time. It's an involved experience that is sometimes a little more involved than it, than it needs to be, and perhaps a little more involved than you might be in the mood for, and you don't want to play with more than two, and you probably want to play co-op, but it's still a very, very compelling and well-designed experience in those terms. Thumbs up from me, for sure. And for what it's worth... 
If you don't have any Mage Knight whatsoever, there is later on in the year going to be the Big Box Ultimate Edition, which is going to have everything that has been released heretofore, a couple new things, alternate paint jobs that Walker will probably hate just as much, and at the very least, one one virtue of having the jumping straight in with the ultimate box is you know that all the components will match. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that much. One would hope that all the components will match. I'm sure WizKids could find a way to screw it up, even inside the same retail box. Yeah, it's so weird. We had Shadespire, brand new expansion, same box, different color tone on the cards. Unbelievable. Color color matching is hard. If, if, even, if even Games Workshop, a company known for high-quality components, can mess it up, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that WizKids, a company known for bad quality components, will also mess it up. All right, now on to our feature topic of the week, which is scaling and why you should never play with your friends. <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes why you need to get more friends. So what are your thoughts on player scaling, Walker? I just want to mostly talk about the need that the seems that people have a need to include more players all the time. Like you always see the call, you know, on Kickstarter or games. It's like, oh, we want the fifth player expansion. We want six players. We want more players all the time. And I have to admit that I used to be one of those one of those people. I, I you know, had my one group, and usually, you know, we played with one table, and you wanted to have a game that, regardless of how many people showed up, everyone got to play, and it has very much gone away from that. I, I, there are games that I will just, you know, I'd rather just sit and watch. If it's going to be, you know, too many players, I I realize that it gives me a negative experience with that game, and that's what I don't want. So I'll just sit out and watch them play if it means it's going to be too many players. I agree with you entirely. There are... The push for, you know, people to play seven-player scythe all the time because that's the maximum number. There's this presupposition that many people have that more is always better and that the maximum number is the ideal number, which is absurd. Yeah, or the printed number is what you can play with. And I have have a, a hall of shame at the end, also a hall of heroes, but I do have a hall of shame of certain games that say they can play at a certain number count and would be absurd to play with that many numbers. Well, let, let's get into that right now. You want to go right to the yeah, end yeah, of the yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, hall of shame number one, Caverna. Seven-player Caverna. Oh, dear Lord. Can you imagine? Like, can, they even added, like, that's in the base game. That's not even with an expansion. It I comes know. base seven players. It increases the cost of the base game, and it encourages people to commit what I think we can agree would be a mistake. This will bring up the first mechanism that helps multiplayer games, and I think that is worker placement. I think worker placement is a great mechanism that makes games flow better at high player counts because you're mostly just doing one thing. You're placing a worker if it's in a location that's still left over. And some systems, you know, you run down through the actions afterwards. Some you do right away. And it's been my experience that most of them work fairly well and quickly. Another way to do it is simultaneous actions. So uh, the, the two that come to mind, one of them is Sidereal Confluence. One of the reasons why Sidereal Confluence scales so well is because the trading is all simultaneous, the economy phase is all simultaneous. So whether you're four people around the table or even all the way up to nine players around the table, now granted with nine, mostly your limitation is going to be the size of the table itself. But you don't have to worry about the extra time. You don't need to worry about waiting for someone else to take their turn. Everyone gets to play always at the same time. The same thing is true of, of Race for the Galaxy. Almost all the phases in Race for the Galaxy are 
here simultaneous. The game plays differently at lower player counts or higher player counts, but it's certainly not the case that it's just going to be lording on more time because it is unfortunate when when games just scale linearly with the number of players. It's so you know the number of games that just start to get too bloated and too long with more and more players is you know, you know many of them are like that. Well, like I said, um, I'll bring up even though I you know. Knocked Seven Wonders. Seven Wonders is a great example of how this works well. Everyone just picks one card, flips it up. Among the Stars, very much like Seven Wonders, a very great space station building game. Everyone picks one card, flips it up, puts it out. And Guards of Atlantis, a great MOBA multiplayer game, but flows very nicely because everyone just picks their one action. Everyone does it, and those are all the games I have for simultaneous action selection. Yeah, we've been so conditioned as board gamers to think that game boxes are lying to us, specifically when it comes to player count. It's one of the reasons why people look at the, the boxes of Serial Confluence or Guards of Atlantis, both of which say effectively four to nine players, and think that's got to be a lie. It's not. They really do play very well out of the box with those number of players. It doesn't make the game too cumbersome or too long, and there's still lots for everyone to do because there's another category of of game that I think is very unfortunate with respect to player scaling and that's what a, a commenter by the name of Brian Bankler calls fixed fun games. These are games where there's a certain amount of turns or actions or fun things to do and the more players you have it just means the less each player gets to do. A classic example of this is Kakasun. You're going to have a certain number of tiles in Kakasun. That's the number of turns that's going to be in the game and if you have two players you just Everyone gets to play with basically half the stack, but every extra player you add, you get fewer and fewer and fewer turns. So there's a certain amount of fun to be had in the game, and the more players you have, the less fun you're going to have. The same is true of lots of other tiling games, like Alhambra works the same way. Any 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 game where there's a fixed amount of fun, generally you want the lower player counts. And it's unfortunate when, again, people have the drive to the maximum number. All right, my next mechanism, mine is central information, and that is games like Karuba, or Take It to the Limit, or Dimension, where, or any of the Roll USA or Roll Tokyo, where there's just one piece of information in the middle and everyone either writes down or has their own board and where you can play almost an infinite number of players. Ricochet Robots. Ricochet yeah. Robots, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I, I also really appreciate when a, a game takes this seriously, and so now let's talk about games that actually take scaling seriously in terms of the components, and that's when the board changes based on the number of players that you have. A good example of this is uh, Small World. Small World has different boards for each player count, although I will say, just as a corollary to what we were saying before about more players just can bloat the, the, the time length, I find that once you know you start playing with five or six players in Small World, it's really, really too long for what it is. But to a certain extent, that's a matter of preference, and at least they recognize that the board does need to change with that uh, that many people. Comet, I think, does it brilliantly. The board of Comet is, is, is wonderful, and you're going to have a different sized board, sometimes even a different shaped board for each number of players, so they take that very seriously. And uh, some good games just don't do it well, even when they're really, really good. The, the best game of all time, Tigers and Euphrates, the map doesn't scale based on the number of players. And that's one of the reasons why some people refuse to play it with two players. Some people won't even play it with three players. I think that's a bit much. I'm willing to play it at any number, but you have to recognize that the, the, the board does get more or less crowded. The same is true of a, a game I just talked about today, Rhinelander. Rhinelander is best with five, playable with four, but when you're playing it with three, there's just too much room. Another great game that changes the map on based on number of players and will feed into my other point is Spirit Island. It'll change, the board will change depending on how many players, and that feeds into most co-op games, I find, 
really leads to they scale well within the player count of the game. So like Pandemic or whatever it is that they use all co-op games, I, I feel, usually scale well. So then there are games that I think don't necessarily spend a lot of time, or rather games that don't have components that alter too much with different numbers of players, but different numbers of players just make the game feel really different. Not necessarily better or worse, but just feel really different. The best example for me of this is uh, is Raw. Raw with three players. Many people will only play Raw with three players. I don't necessarily understand why, but the game feels very, very different with three compared to four, compared to five. The level of chaos and control, the kind of risk that you have to be willing to make, what constitutes a good bid in Raw, changes radically based on the number of players at the table. And that is one of the things that I really appreciate learning about a game, the, the different texture that it has at different player counts. Now, sometimes it has a different texture just because it's bad, but in Raw, it's just interestingly different. I will also note and, and flag Raw for another thing. Raw is the only game I've ever encountered that lies about its player count in a good way. It says it's three to five, but really it's two to five. Raw plays perfectly well with two players, which, you know, is kind of surprising given that it's an auction game. But trust me, uh, the two-player variants are very, very, very good. And that's the, one of the, the few times that a bo- game box has lied to me in a pleasant way. I'm going to talk about Rising Sun a little bit because, you know, we can't have a segment that we don't mention Rising Sun lately, apparently. It does a lot of things, good and bad, I feel. I think... The player count within the game doesn't work well with Rising Sun because I feel as though some of the player powers, when you get down to the lower player numbers, don't interact with each other very well. It's one of the things I commented on in our review. There are a couple of strange interactions between player count and cards that are available and faction powers that don't really sit well. They seem a little bit fluky and arbitrary. And that's one of those ways in which, again, the system is very, very, very opaque. And it rewards system mastery. And it rewards experienced players who sit down and think about all the extra angles, including the angles that are just the game systems itself working in very strange ways. So yes, Rising Sun is a game where you have to be very conscious of how many players are sitting at the table. It's kind of like Raw in that sense, although not nearly as good as Raw, in terms of different player counts are going to lead to very different feeling games. And then its sister game, Blood Rage, does it very well too, where it's uh, card drafting. So you're, you know, just like Seven Wonders, everyone's drafting cards, you grab a hand, pick a card, and then the combat's very quick. It's the same sort of thing. It's like almost like action selection. Everyone puts down a card, everyone flips up, combat's done, moving on. And the, the map scales for the number of players. Not in as, as sophisticated a way as Kemet or other games, but at least scales from the number of players. And actually, uh, Blood Rage is an example of sort of the opposite of what you talked about before. Blood Rage seems like it scales to five very naturally, and yet out of the box with just the base game, it's only three or four players, which seems a bit odd. I I felt kind of the same way about Cosmic Encounter, which in the relaunch only went from three to five players, when Cosmic, I think, can easily go to six. I think that's, and many people prefer it at six. I I don't necessarily have a favorite number uh, with with, with Cosmic past four. So sometimes it's, maybe it's just a cash grab, I don't know. But it seems strange that Blood Rage you needed to get a fifth player expansion, especially since the game on which it was based, namely Midgard, was three to five players out of the box. True enough. I want to rant about more of my list now. You go ahead, Walker. All right. Next up is Zeto Shift. Five, six player expansion. Oh, dear Lord. I would not even, like, I would hesitate to play with three even, never mind four, five, or six. Yeah, it's definitely in the same category as Mage Knight. It wants to keep the player count very low. Next up is Star Trek Ascendancy. They're claiming that we can go up to 10 players with this. In the base game, it comes with enough 
initiative cards to go up to 10 players. But not only that, the downtime between they have nine actions for you to do during your turn before someone else can go. Not right. So Twilight Imperium, you know, it says that it, it goes up to uh, six players. Is that, that how much it is out of the box? The new one, yes. Yeah, when really it should be played by zero players and just set on fire. Those are hurtful words, Mark. Now, moving on, <laughs> moving on I just want to make a quick note of games like uh, War of the Ring and Rebellion, which they claim are or four-player games. And I'm getting, I shouldn't say getting tired. Like, I, I know sometimes you want to play this game when you have more people, but tacking on these, like, really odd rules to make it a team game, like, you're the Armada General, so you can only play actions for this, and you're the, and, and I'm all into sharing the experience in a team, but, like, why tack on these, like, weird rules? Why not just play as a team, you know, have the cards and, you know, make decisions and talk about it and just have fun playing it? Because that's how we always used to play. Like, I know when we played War of the Ring the first few times, there's just a lot of information, and it helps out that some guys keeping track of all your cards and knowing when they trigger and knowing when to play them while you, you know, concentrate on other things. But they really are just a two-player game. One of the best results of having enough experience with board games and having read enough rule books and played enough games is sometimes it's very easy to read a rule book or even sometimes just understand the premise of a game and know that they're lying to you. It's very easy to look at a game. Uh, the, the, the paradigmatic example of this, for me anyway, is the same as the the worst lie on a box that I've ever seen. And that was the first edition of Duel of Ages, which claimed that it was a 2-16 to 16 player game, which is a grotesque lie. Duel of Ages, some people love to play it in teams, that's fine. Uh, but 16 players is a, is a grotesque exaggeration. And indeed, when you read the rulebook, it's very clear that this is just a two-team game where you can split up the number of characters on a team. Fine, go ahead. But still, it's like I said, it's a fixed fun game. If you're going to have eight characters in a game, that's eight sets of actions. And if you divvy that up amongst eight players, you're not giving them enough to keep them occupied. To say nothing of 16. Good lord. All right, that's my Hall of Shame done. I do have one left on my Hall of Heroes because we've talked about the rest already, and that's Shogun. I really enjoy Shogun, and I really like how it keeps the flow going, even with all the player counts, because you're putting down all your actions, and then you you know flip them all up at the same time. You know, we're doing this action now. Everyone reveals it, goes around the table, and I think it does a great job of keeping everyone engaged, and it has a cube tower. It, it's funny you mention that because I actually have that system, the the Wallenstein, Shogun, Immortal system, as an example of a game where as you add more players, you're just adding more time, quite linearly. There are also games that take far longer than I always think they should. You're right. In theory, it's all very simple. After everyone's planned their actions, the actions are very simple to execute, bang, bang, bang. And yet you still end up, it always seems to end up taking three hours, even with experienced players. And I think part of that is the temptation to play at larger player counts. But anyway, our experiences with those game systems have been slightly different. That's what I have to do with player scaling. Please stop asking designers to add more players because they have they have a vision and they have a design and they've play tested it with certain number of players. Oh, you have far more faith in game designers than I do. And you demand more players, so they just wedge one in there and it throws everything off. I think we should give cre- credit where credit is due, and I, I, I think this is a good way to, to close it off, and that is credit to Jamie Stegmeier, because when he announced that he was 
putting in two new factions in the side, everyone's like, oh, great, we can play with six or seven. And his immediate response was, I think that's a bad idea. I don't think you should do that. And then people said, no, 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 we really will. We're just going to do it. And he says, okay, fine. I'll make special rules for six and se- uh, seven players, but I really don't think you should. So I, I give him credit for simultaneously accommodating the demands of his fans while trying to give pushback where he could and then introducing slight rules modifications to try to... S- ease the transition a little bit. Telling people what to want is a hard thing to do, but I respect that Jamie Stegmaier tried to do it anyway. Actually, that brings up a small point that I forgot to make. I wanted to know your opinion on games that add mechanisms in order to make the flow better at high player counts. So games like Eclipse and or the new uh, Mystic Veil that's going to be coming out where you start, you know, they say, okay, well, now you have to take simultaneous turns. And, you know, there's so much thing, so many things going on at the table that there's no way you can keep track of what everyone else is doing because, you know, there's two people taking actions at the same time. I appreciate the thought. The, the couple times that I've tried the one, the one with Eclipse, the multiple action pawns just ended up getting bunched up behind the slowest player anyhow. So it didn't quite have the desired effect. And even with faster players, I think that's sort of a tacit recognition that you should be playing two games at two tables anyway. You're not really going to be interacting substantively with the person way on the other end of the universe. So maybe you should just be doing different games. But As that's, what, that's what I was thinking, too. If you have to actually introduce a separate rule for high player counts, then maybe you should be splitting up two different tables. Yeah, I don't want to overgeneralize, but that's definitely been my experience so far. So that's about all we've got to say this week on this episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you so very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at TheGamesYouLike. A very helpful listener pointed out that I've been misidentifying my Twitter handle all this time because I'm bad at Twitter. So thank you very much for correcting me. It is at TheGamesYouLike. For a more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read absolutely everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks once again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Please do take care. See you next week. Remember, we're giving away a full Kickstarter copy of Massive Darkness in episode 25, so tune in for that. All the information will be in episode 25, and see you next week. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.